Hello and welcome to Bible Marathon. We're all about learning how to read the Bible, about spiritual gifts and giving proper defense and explanation for what we believe as Christians. The goal is to progress with joy in the faith and without further ado, let's get into the word. Okay, so let's let's begin. Let's begin. First of all, I know we had a conversation last time where I was discussing um, the, the the subject of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven, and we kind of like tried to discuss: is there a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? And there were many sides on it, and I categorically said there is a difference, and that the difference is not one or the other but that the focus and the audience of one is different from the focus and the audience of the other. All right. So I remember going to the Old Testament, showing you the prophecy of Daniel and somehow trying to tie the, you know, the whole story back to show you that when the Bible refers to the kingdom of heaven, there is a specific idea in mind. And when the Bible says the kingdom of God, most times it refers to a unique thing entirely. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven, you would notice primarily that that is used in the gospels and specifically in the gospel of Matthew, right? When you read the gospel of Matthew, you see it everywhere. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, and then you just see this whole idea of there's a kingdom of heaven. But where is that idea from? We read it last week that Daniel was interpreting one of the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and he told him everything. He said, hey, you dreamt about a statue, a very huge statue. And the statue had different elements for different body parts. So a head of gold and then, you know, body of is it bronze or silver or something. And then, you know, the feet of iron and then the lower feet of iron and clay. And I explained to you that those were referring to kingdoms and god was using that dream to give a prophecy about what to expect right what to expect in the journey of this life so we start with the first kingdom the first kingdom was the one Nebuchadnezzar was babylon and then you see the meds and P, um, the, the persians and the medes and then you just keep going down until you get to the roman kingdom all right and then you see that the the, the one for the feet of iron and clay, there's a prophecy specifically that, you know, at that time, there'll be a new kingdom. And the kingdom there is called the kingdom of the God of heaven. And you know what's interesting is, you read it in the Hebrew, and you will see it as the kingdom of heaven, but, you know, still can still be seen as the kingdom of the God of heaven. So, and I remember we had a conversation here. Someone asked a question, I think it was Shewa, that you know, she was expecting that the kingdom should also be a physical kingdom. And you know what? She was exactly right. And I try to emphasize that the difference is not um, you know, that the kingdom of heaven is about heaven and the kingdom of God is about God. Rather, it's very, it's very weird when you read the scriptures. You realize that the references to the kingdom of heaven are actually talking about an earthly kingdom. Very weird but you can see the consistency in that. So let me do a, a quick story just because I feel like without Bible history, it, you may just not get the point. So are we ready for a little Bible history? 
You know, I want you to walk with me together. Let's do this Bible history. The plan today is we'll go through this Bible history. I'll try to show you this concept of um, the kingdom of heaven juxtaposed with the kingdom of God. And then from there, we're going to a lot of parables and try to interpret and see what Jesus is saying. You know why it's important to do this? Some of you may be like, why is the, what's the point? But there are some, I promise you, there are some parables you've read or some stories in the, in the gospels you've read that have made you fear for your salvation. Like, oh my God, I'm not, maybe I'm not really saved, you know? And you, you just feel like it's, uh, it's written to you. But when you understand this, the dynamics of the kingdom of heaven versus kingdom of God, you, there's a different approach to those texts. That's why I've always talked about rightly dividing the word of truth. All right. So let's do that together right now. So I'm taking you, to, I'm taking you back to primary school, uh, wherever you first had or experienced CRK or just any Bible knowledge at all. What you find out, let me open my Bible here so that I can share my screen. Who is the first character we see in the Bible? Trick question. But who is the first character we see in the Bible? God. 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 Exactly. And so God is what? The king. Ruler over everything. What does he do? He creates. And thank God for the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation gives us insights into God's creative plan. It says all things were created for his pleasure. God wanted to be a king which he already is, but a king without a dominion or a domain, is it really a kingdom, you know? And then also God wanted to have subjects that he can love and build a relationship with. So he creates humans and that's where we come from. The first man is Adam. And in a sense, God starts to give this man a kingdom. How do I know this? Genesis 1.26, right? Who can tell me, who can quote Genesis 1.26? And God said, and God said, let us make man in our yeah. image and likeness, and he shall have and let him have dominion. Dominion, beautiful. So have dominion. So he created man and gave them what, in a sense, a kingdom. Now, theologians will agree that something happened to that kingdom. What was that? What happened to that kingdom? Um, sin crept in. Yes, like, sin crept in, and in a sense, the dominion that man had was lost in a form. So that kingdom was lost. And so you see the whole story amidst the the, the point of, you know, the the main storyline of salvation, there is also the main storyline of a kingdom. And most people miss out on that one. You know, there's actually many times in the scriptures, you just see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. We talked about it last week, right? The kingdom of God is like 70 times in the scripture, that's a, a whole lot of times to mention that phrase. And so it means there is something God had in mind, you know, from the very beginning, a kingdom that will stand and never be shaken. But we see that there is some one kind of kingdom God gives to man, man messes up, and all of a sudden there is now chaos. And so what do we see in the next part of the story? Well, he goes on and Human sins, God begins to work out his plan to save them. Next thing we see in the picture is just life going on. Then Noah comes on the scene. There's a lot of evil in the earth. God wipes evil away. I'm just trying to rush through the Old Testament in a little bit. And basically starts with this family. And while starting with this family, I mean, God has wiped away 
humans, but humans keep rebelling. If you read the story, you just see it's a story of rebellion consistently. <laughs> so now God is going to start this kingdom. He wants to start this kingdom where he is king and is ruling over everything. And um, I mean, he always has done that, but he just wanted to create that unique kingdom. How is he going to do that? How is he going to bring the reign of God into back into the heart of man, even when sin has corrupted man? So God is going to start with a people. And so in the lineage of Noah, in fact, we read Genesis 9. Noah is the story there. Genesis 11, something big happens in Genesis 11. How many of you remember? The Tower of Babel. It was one language, one nation, one people, and then this rebellion, rebellious human beings go again. What happens? They lose their language, their single language, and now everyone has their own languages. So what do you think that will produce by default? Because men are always going to be people that desire power and people that just want to be in authority. You, What you have there is just the recipe for multiple kingdoms, right? So people are speaking different languages. So now they're in different nations. They're scattered abroad, trying to build something for themselves, which was what they were trying to do, and God scattered them. So now different people groups scattered around the world. God wants to redeem man. God decides to choose a nation for himself. Who does he choose? He speaks to Abraham, tells him to leave his family, his kindred, all right? And what does Abraham do? He does, obeys God. That leads to the story of Israel. So I'm skipping. A lot has happened, right? But Israel comes on the scene, um, who was formerly Jacob. Um, someone said division and classification was probably birthed from the Tower of Babel. Exactly. The fact that there is now not only division of language, but division in, in just like categorizing people, case systems in some countries, by the way. So a lot of things just came about that um, or came from that. So you follow the story and you realize that now a new nation is formed. God wants to deal with the people of Israel. Israel is just Jacob's name changed and his genealogy. So now the people of Israel are God's people. God has a covenant with them. God wants to deal with them, work with them. And ultimately his plan is to reestablish his kingdom, right? That's, that's ultimately what it seems like. If you look at the, the theory of the kingdom of God being placed in the heart of man and in, in his world, that's what he's trying to do. So Israel, guess what they keep doing? Messing up, right? So what does God do? God brings in judges. How many of you know what this story is? God brings in judges, different people in the book of Judges. They rise, they deliver the people from their problems, and they're happy. Next moment, they forget about God. They sin again. God raises another judge. Like this is really, I mean, radical stuff. Let me show you because I've not showed any scripture today, which is unlike me. Um, but I hope you guys are following. This foundation is so important because when we get to the real point of um, why, where's the parables background? Sorry. Why we're ever doing this in the first place, it will just make sense to you. Or why we have to even understand these things. All right, so judges, um, let me share my screen. How do, where does the book of Judges start from? The, the name mentioned in Judges here is, is Joshua. Notice, 
after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? So the backdrop is these people do not have, you know, any ruler or leader. You know, Moses is gone. Joshua is gone. So now what's going to happen? And then God still speaks to them, guides them. So what you start seeing in the book of Judges, you just see judges after judges, you know, Samson, Deborah, you know, a lot of people. So what now happens next? In the history of Israel, they decide they want to be like other nations. Now, God wants to be their king. God wants to be their ruler. God wants to establish his kingdom. But they want their own king. They want to be like other nations. So what do they do? They ask for a king. And so Samuel, you know, seeks the Lord about that. So we're now in First Samuel. We're literally doing a historical Bible study um, right now. Let me see if I can find the text. In fact, Eli, it started with, um, okay, this is where he spoke to them. And then verse six, where do I start from? I'll just tell you the story because I feel like if we start this, we're going to another thing and I won't get to the meat of today's teaching. So we know the story, right? Um, They want a king. Who did they ask for? Saul, right? So Saul becomes their king. What, what happens with Saul? He messes up, right? It's almost like the, 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 the whole story of, of humanity is just messing up big time. Like we, they just keep messing up. Israelites, they just keep going against God's, God's plan. And so God wanted to be their king. They asked for a king. God gives them a king. Saul messes up. Who takes over? David. And in David's rulership, there is a prophecy that comes that from the line of David, by the way, even before this point, God has already been saying it through the prophets, through Moses, that there's someone who's coming, a prophet like me is coming. Someone is going to come out of the root of Jesse, right? A kingdom that will last forever, that will rule and reign forever. There's always been that prophecy in scripture that this is going to happen. So David comes on the scene. He's a great king. And it's like, yes, David is it, right? This is the king we've been waiting for. Victory everywhere. Everything is going well. And then we, if you read the Bible, you realize the, the drama never stops. So every other king that came after David just kept messing up. <laughs> just proving that the kingdom of God is, is a very, very unique thing it's something that if if you if god is not the one in charge or the one ruling everything can just go haywire so now i've used the word i've used the phrase kingdom of god what you would realize here from the very beginning is that the prophecy that daniel gave which i want to go to daniel 2 verse yeah okay I'm sharing my screen. So this is Daniel chapter two from verse 43. Okay, verse 44. In this time, in those time of those kings, let me put in the um, KJV. So listen, remember, we've talked about the different kingdoms. While this kingdom is going on, while, you know, David and all these people, you know, are ruling, nothing is looking like it's, it's together. Everything is just in shambles. These kings are messing up. But there was a prophecy that there will be all these different powers 
right? All these different um, nations. And look at this. It says, and in the, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. So question, what kingdom is he referring to? He's talking about a kingdom. First of all, we have the clue here. A kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Every other kingdom was destroyed except this kingdom. So when a Jew hears this kingdom, they are already naturally thinking about, oh, there was Babylon. There was this, this, this. Now we're under the Roman kingdom. They are ruling us. So they were waiting for the coming of a natural king, a king that would be better than Saul, David, a king that will replace all the judges, a king that would take these people into God's ultimate plan, right? So that's what they were thinking. So a Jew hears kingdom, and guess what is triggered? Messiah. Someone is coming. He will build an earthly kingdom. And the kingdom they understood then was the kingdom of heaven. So when you come to Matthew chapter 3, from verse, verse 1. Look at what he says. Matthew 3, 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching into the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent ye for the kingdom of what? Heaven is at hand. Question, when you say something is at hand, what does it mean? It's here, right? It's about to be here. Get ready for it. We're about to see something happen. And so he was telling them to repent because he wanted them to realize that they have been pushing and fighting against this kingdom. So they have to change their minds and be ready to receive what is supposed to be that kingdom in their minds, the earthly kingdom where the Messiah would reign. And it would, just like the prophecy of Daniel, crush the other kingdom. So imagine the average Jew. It's like, ah, the Messiah is coming. They were thinking a gently Jackie Chan you know, Sun Tzu warrior that is going to come and defeat the Romans and bring Israel back to their all to, to the place that they were already promised. Because God had already told them, you guys, you are my special people. I'll place you above every nation of the earth, right? So, and they were not under, they were not over every nation of the earth. They were under Roman terror. <laughs> so their thought process was someone is going to come and deliver us. And I remember reading it last week that even on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus died, they were like, we thought it was one that was going to redeem Israel. They were not thinking in terms of salvation. They were thinking in terms of delivering them from the tyranny of the Romans. All right. So when you have that mindset and that understanding, anytime you see the kingdom of heaven, you have to realize what the Jew was hearing and think from that lens because it helps you interpret a lot of the parables. Another thing I want to add here is the fact that the kingdom of heaven is an, was an earthly kingdom that these people actually consistently rejected. So it wasn't just um, the Israelites of old that rejected this kingdom. When Jesus was here, do you realize that Jesus could have set up his physical kingdom at that time if he was accepted? Because there are scriptures that talk about the fact that they resisted God, and so it didn't happen. Look at Acts chapter 7. 
And this is Stephen talking. Stephen was about to be killed. They, uh, they accused him. And he was telling the whole story, literally what I just told you, that God called Abraham. It's like the story started with Abraham, even though he started earlier. But, you know, talking about the promise, you start with Abraham. He said, he gave none of the inheritance to it, not to set his foot on. Let me read from um, maybe HCSB. He goes on. I'm going to skip all of this. I said, I would, he says, I will judge the nation, verse 7, that they will serve as slaves. God said, after this, they will come out and worship me in this place. Um, then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. He's talking about everything that he did with the patriarchs. Goes to Joseph's story, right? Um, let me skip to where it gets very, very beautiful. And at, at the time, that, as the time was drawing near, um, to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt. So he's, he's moved the story now to Egypt, these people are in Egypt. By the way, please, when you have the time, read Acts 7, all right, on your own. You would get a lot of history. It's very, very, very helpful. So he talks about Moses. So we know Moses, right? Moses is the one that takes care of the, the Israelites. Um, he, he just tells them everything that's, you know. Then he says, after 40 years, had passed, an angel appeared to him in the desert of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. And then God spoke to Moses. Fast forward, he talks about Aaron. This is such a teaching, you know, talks about how they rebelled against God. Then he comes to David. He says, Our fourth, okay, beautiful. See this. Our forefathers in turn received it. And with Joshua, brought it in when they were disposed when they dispossessed the nation that God drove out before our fathers until the days of David. So now he has come to David. Then he says, um, he found favor in God's sight and asked that he may provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built him a house. However, the whole, most high does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house would you build for me? Right? So look at this. Look at what he, he, he accused them of. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your forefathers did. So do you. So listen, God has been trying to work and build his kingdom and rule in the hearts of men, but they kept resisting it. How? They resisted the prophets. The Bible says here that they they resisted the Holy Spirit as they did, you know, the forefathers did. Look at verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Right? He said that even the prophets God sent, your forefathers, your ancestors dealt with them. He said they even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Who is the righteous one here? Jesus, right? He says, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So he, he literally just Get, put upon them the crime that their forefathers had. He said they've not changed. That God has been trying to reach out to them. Prophets, they killed the prophets. You know, God sent more people to warn them. They killed them. God now sent Jesus Christ. These same people re resisted the Holy Spirit and killed Jesus as well. They had opportunities. In fact, Pilate at the time was like, you know, Jesus or Barabbas. They still said Barabbas. Like, they were hard-hearted people. So the question is, if they had received 
the coming of the Messiah, because actually the Messiah, the Messiah's coming was not just, you know, we are, we are Gentiles. So we think about it mostly in the sense of salvation from sin and it's correct. All right. It's true. But there's a bigger picture. Like Israel is not, this is not the end of Israel. That kingdom of heaven that was promised will still come. There will still be an earthly kingdom that will reign, which is the kingdom of heaven that was, was at hand that he asked them to receive. They did not receive. But while that was going on, the kingdom of God was at work. And that's the difference here. So while the kingdom of heaven is a physical kingdom, you know, one of the hints to why the, the, the kingdom of heaven would be should be considered a physical kingdom where Jesus will rule and reign and his influence will be felt physically was the fact that he said the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. So there's, there was a pressing in into a physical kingdom, right? So there's the idea, like, why would there be any suffering of violence um, if it was just a spiritual, solely spiritual kingdom? That would make sense. If there was any conflict, um, and then another clue is the fact that the, the message of this, this message was primarily to a Jewish audience. So Matthew was, as you guys, as you guys may not know or know, was writing to Jews. So Matthew's gospel was specifically to a Jewish audience. Now, Mark, maybe not because there are hints that Mark was writing to um, audience, Gentiles included. John clearly was referring to a Gentile audience. Luke, we have a clue that Luke was writing to a Gentile audience as well because he wrote the book of Acts and that was very clearly referring to someone who was not a believer, who was not a Jew, my bread. So the only gospel that used kingdom of heaven is Matthew. And it was because the people that he was writing to were Jews who would definitely understand his point. How do I know it was written to the Jews? Have you read Matthew before? And have you ever been stopped by the phrase and it was said by the prophets or this was to fulfill that which the prophets had said? Have you read that before? You see a statement of Jesus and it says, this was to fulfill and then he quote the prophets. That's a clue that they are supposed to know these things. Or he goes into genealogy, like the whole Matthew chapter one is, let me keep the story first. Let me just tell you that this Messiah is actually from the line of David, that you can trace him back, you get, because that was relevant to the Jew. The Jew would not just believe anything if you could not trace the facts. So this is crucial. And um, that's why sometimes when you see the phrase kingdom of heaven in Matthew. You look at Luke, John, Mark, and they may be giving an idea of the same parable and they just interchange it because now your understanding of the kingdom of heaven, knowing that it was supposed to be an earthly reign of Christ is something that the Jews are still going to experience. There is still a coming kingdom, and, and I don't want to go into ex, uh, eschatology right now, um, but at the end, how many of you have heard of the millennial reign of Christ? Like, Jesus is still going to rule on the earth. Now, he's ruling in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is generally 
to be understood as the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in you. So God is still ruling. Anywhere God has dominion and is actively working is the kingdom of God. And that's us in us. He's, the spirit is in us, right? He's dwelling in us. So that's the kingdom of God. And it makes sense because when Paul is talking about the kingdom of God, he says it's not a meat or drink, which is a physical realm, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's a spiritual thing, a spiritual kingdom where God has full authority and dominion. And that kingdom is alive today. Hallelujah. But there is still the sense of a coming kingdom, all right, that will fulfill the prophecy of Daniel, where Jesus Christ will rule and reign with all the saints. Like Jesus will actually reign. All right. This is so important because this is, uh, it is not, when you don't understand this, you will sideline Israel you will not realize that Israel is still part of God's plan. Let me show you this text as we round this off and I go into like the parables and you start to see the hints of these things. So Romans 11, I want to read from verse one. Can someone read verse one? Anyone? So praise has a question. So that means the Jews were not wrong when they viewed Jesus as a political leader. Yes and no. So they were right to see that Jesus was supposed to rule them and reign and take charge. But the way in which he would was what they missed because the prophets also spoke about the way he would do it. So even if they had accepted him, I still believe Jesus would still have died because he was not just coming to reign over the Israelites. God's plan was to save all of mankind and to forgive sin must be the shedding of blood. So that was still God's plan. But these people would have not been partakers of the killing and crucifixion of Jesus. Had they known, that was what Paul said, had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they were dull of hearing, hard of heart. All right, so that's why I say it's a yes and no. It's a thing of Jesus would have ruled. Do you remember what happened when he was going into the temple? Some people that really understood and believed in him, they were like, this guy is actually the Messiah. So they, they actually put palm fronds and all of those things because they were supposed, that was the fulfillment of scripture. He's a ruler. He's actually going to be the king. Mockingly so, um, on the cross, there was a sign that said, king of the Jews. It was supposed to mock him. But that was the point. Like people did recognize that this guy was no ordinary man and that God was in him, with him, and he was supposed to be that king in the line of David who would rescue them. But the how was not clear. But then Jesus himself said, you're, you're slow, you're like fools. Don't you know that it was God's plan that this man, the Messiah, would have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And so he now expounded to them, hey, this is how it's going to happen. But here's the thing. They rejected Christ. They killed the prophets and they killed Jesus. And they did not know that they were, in a sense, ultimately still bringing about this powerful kingdom where we, the Gentiles, would benefit from this commonwealth that was supposed to just be for Israel. Remember last week we read it that Jesus told them to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And guess who he sent them to? Only the Jews. He said, don't go anywhere else, just to the lordship of the house of Israel. Because it was part of God's plan to give them an opportunity to say, hey, 
my kingdom is coming home. Will you be a part or would you reject me like you rejected the prophets who came before me? All right. So it was still always God's plan, but the how was what they didn't get. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you. All right. Now look at this. Romans 11.1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. Who are his people? Israelites. For I too am an Israelite. Descendant of Abraham, born of the tribe of Benjamin. This is like a real, a real Jew. He says, has God rejected his people who he foreknew? Or do you not know that the, the scripture says in Elijah, how he pleased, how he pleased with God against Israel? Um, let me look at what he was saying. Lord, they've killed your prophets, turned down your altars. I'm the only one left. And then, you know, he talks about how, no, God has not forgotten about Israel because he has preserved for himself a remnant, people who will still you know, while everyone is rebelling and turning away from the plan of salvation and God's plan in setting up his kingdom, there will be those who will stand, you know, in spite of the flock of people rejecting the Messiah. There will be people who will believe. And those are the remnants chosen by grace. Um, but let me skip to where this is very important. Look at verse, verse, yes, verse 25. Romans 11.25, don't forget this verse because this is a powerful verse that shows that Paul definitely thought and believed and understood that God is not done with Israel and that that kingdom is still going to come where Jesus will rule in a physical kingdom. He would rule and reign and Israelites will have a big part to play in that. So he says, don't be conceited, brothers, talking to the Gentiles. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. He calls it a mystery because, you know, it needs to be explained. He says, a partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles have come in. If you've not heard me teach on this, let me give you a summary. God allowed the Jews to rebel. They chose to. God led them on in doing that. And he has ensured that that will remain until the word of God reaches all the Gentiles, those who are numbered amongst the Gentiles who will believe. And then when the full number of Gentiles has come in, I don't think there's a fixed number. Some people teach 124,000, some weird teachings. The full number just means once there is the number of people who will believe amongst the Gentiles, it says the partial hardening will be lifted and all of Israel will be saved. You know, do you realize that if you read Revelation, I don't want to go into that now, but there are a lot of things that Revelation speaks to about the two elders. You know, there are some things that will happen in, 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 in the future that will make all the Israelites go, oh my God, it was always Christ. Something will happen, you know, I don't know how it's going to play out, but there's this statement here that says all of Israel will be saved. It doesn't mean every individual Israelite will go will be saved. It just means as a nation, they will accept Christ Jesus as their Messiah. And then look at look at where he quotes a physical location. The liberator will come from Zion. I've told you that Mount Zion is a physical location. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. All right. So, um, I think that should be helpful enough to differentiate because when we start looking at some of the parables which we want to do right now and then i'll throw in some of the hard sayings of jesus and see if we can understand them 
Um, but any questions so far? Any question on what I've explained? The truth what I just did in a short while is something that should take a long time where we study together, we look through all the verses together. You realize that um, the Bible is very Jewish and the average reader, if not well instructed, might miss out on a lot of things. Have you just noticed that you just find yourself sometimes going to scriptures? You have no idea who he's talking about. Say Lebanon, Zion, you now be prophesying it on your life. You know, that's that's not how to handle the word of God. These are real places with real people, real, real prophecies that you have to understand in context, you know. So, you know, sometimes you read um, the Psalms of David and instead of you to see it as, oh, th- David is meditating on God's ability to keep and protect him and guide him, you know, and understand it in that context. Maybe Psalms of like, destroy all my enemies. You find people in the church taking those texts where David literally meant actual enemies, like warriors that were coming to destroy the nation of Israel. But you now take it and say, oh Lord, my enemies, let them be scattered. You now use that as a, as a prayer point for your life. If you don't have, I feel like there's a, there's a looseness to that. You don't, it's not super strict. I feel like you can pray some of those prayers if you understand them. But primarily, if you understand what you are reading, a lot of the prayers you pray will just not make sense. And I feel like we should address this one of these days where like, okay, it's not every psalm that should just be quoted as pertaining to you. The psalm should be understood as poetic writings from someone in, in his time um, in his, and his experience with Israel and as a king or whoever was writing the psalm, talking about his experiences, and many times even with a prophetic sense of something to happen in the future. So if you don't read it in that with that lens, you will miss out on a whole lot of biblical balance. Um, so that's why Bible study is hard work. Seek to understand, seek to grow, seek to discern correctly. All right, let's look at some of the parables in the Bible. Are we ready? I didn't see any questions, so I think we'll proceed. So let's look at some of the parables. Let's go to Matthew 13, and I'll just try to, you know, explain them. Um, this is a whole lot of a reading, but I'll rush through this with the speed of light. <laughs> All right. So the first parable we're going to look at is the parable of the sower. The beauty of the parable of the sower is that Jesus, the teller of the story, told us the meaning. So we are blessed. Um, we don't have to find the meaning somewhere else. We can listen to the words of Jesus, how he explained to his disciples, and we should be good. So let's go. So if you are taking notes, we are in the parable of the sower. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seeds fell on, along the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky ground where there wasn't much soil and they sprang up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. So he's talking about the first category. Um, after the fir- So the first category is what? Some seeds fell on the path. Birds ate them up. Some fell on rocky ground. There was not enough soil. Those, you know, sprang up and this, because the soil wasn't deep and they just, you know, basically died. 
when the sun came out. Others fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them. Still others fell on good ground and produced a crop, some hundred, some sixty, some thirty times. What are those things? When it says hundred, sixty, thirty fold, it just means how many more times what you planted. So if you plant one and you get six, that's sixfold. So that's what the idea of folds there or in this translation doesn't say that, just goes ahead straight. Anyone who has ears should listen. Disciples now came up to him. So he just told them the parable. The disciples came to him and they asked him a question that we answered in the first teaching. Why do you speak to them in parables? And he said, well, the secret of the kingdom of heaven has been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him. And he will have more than enough. So you need to realize that he's saying it's not given to them because they are, they're hard. The understanding is not given to them because they are hard. They've, their heart is hard against God's plan. And they are close to that later on because he's going to talk about the fact that their hearts are callous and all of that. Let's read. And you see that now it flows into my explanation I started with and last week, right? Talking about the kingdom of heaven how this was something to the Jews, to the people Jesus was sent to, was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, had to fulfill a prophecy about him. Now they rejected him. And so God opened the door to do more, a great door and an effectual. Uh, we'll get there. You know, we'll talk more about it. Um, okay. So we are in what verse now? Okay. Why do you speak in parables? Because the secret of the kingdom of, the he- of heaven has been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. For this reason, I speak to them in parables. Because looking, they do not see. And hearing, they do not listen or understand. He said, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them. He's quoting Isaiah. He says, um, which says, you will listen and listen, yet never understand. And you will look and look, yet never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and ears. And sorry, and hear with their ears. So you see the, see the key phrase there. For this people's hearts have grown callous. You see, that's the issue. So why talk to them in plain in the in plain words? I would rather speak to them in parables because if they want to really know, they will seek for it and it will be clear to them. Or they just take it as stories and they remain blind since they want to be. So that's Jesus' rationale here. He says, if they turn back, I will cure them. But your eyes are blessed because they do see, your ears because they do hear. For I assure you, many prophets are righteous. Why is it that they are ears here because first of all it was audacious for someone to call them and say follow me think about this this is a jewish rabbi he says follow me and these people follow jesus knowing that his claims are that he is the messiah that is massive it means these people are going against the chief priests the sadducees and the rulers of those days so the fact that they are going against the the, the, the theme of their day made 
was a great way for them to not be callous. Like they were turning away from the traditions and the rulers of those days to follow this one who is the Messiah. They took the claim. So it would make sense that Jesus would say, you are blessed. You know, you are following me. You recognize who I am. Even though they didn't see the full picture, but at least they followed him, right? He says, for I assure you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see the things that you see. Yet they didn't see them. Or to hear the things you hear, yet didn't hear them. So now he's going to tell them the meaning of the parable. So listen, he says, listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom, clues, very powerful clues, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. He says, this is the one sown according to the, par- the path. So when the sower sows seeds on the path and birds come, perch and take those things. That's the analogy for those who hear the word and it doesn't have time to foster in their heart. He says, and to the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy because rocky ground is not deep, by the way. It's rocky. It's not like rocks because most people think, you know, he was referring to rocks like granite. No. It's just soil that is hard, and so it's not porous enough. The the, the roots can't go deep. So they grow quickly because they are at the surface. You know, sunlight is there, water is there. So they have all the conditions for growth. But because it's not deep, he says, because he has no root in him, he's short-lived. When pressure or persecution, he's talking about pressure and persecution being sunlight, right? He says, because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, the one sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the seduction of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on on the good soil, this is one who hears and understands the word, who does bear fruit and yield some 160 and 30. Praise God. So Jesus took time to explain this parable and, you know, helped us see where he was going with this. So I don't know if this has become a little bit more enlightening. Most people just jump to this and talk about different kinds of salvation. And then I'm like, I don't know if that is what um, this particular parable is referring to. It's talking about how people, different people will receive the kingdom. They'll receive the kingdom ultimately, which I believe extends to the kingdom of God, as you see in other gospels. But the point is the heart's reception to the message. The word of God is published just like the sower so seed. And it has a different result in different people. And what is variable here is not the seed. It is the soil, how people receive. So Jesus will even warn them and say, um, pay attention to how you hear. Like that's such an interesting instruction. Pay attention to how you listen because there are different soils. Um, we can continue to another parable, which is just following after this one. All right, so let's look at the parable together. The next one here is, any question though? I think you guys are good. So let's go ahead. Because there's so much to cover. (laughs) I keep saying this thing. All right. So now we're looking at the parable of the weeds. I'll call it the parable of the weeds, not the parable of widow. 
weeds. All right. So verse 24, read all the way to verse 30. So he presented another parable to them, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. So he had a field, sowed good seed. And I think, you know, Jesus is just connecting two stories with the same um, scenario or with the same elements. So he's talking about sowing seed again. But now this will give you a better insight into the fact that it had nothing to do with the seed per se. Like Jesus can use any example to tell his story. But you must remember the principle at the very beginning. Instead of taking everything allegorically, right? And just say, this means this, this means this. If Jesus doesn't explain it, you have the responsibility to look for that one meaning in that parable. And the context many times helps. Remember, I had already been talking about hardened hearts in his previous parable. So now he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, the enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's slaves came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he said. So they, they asked him, do you want us to go and gather them up? And then he says, no. When you gather them up, when you gather up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Ah, he said, let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but store the weeds in my barn. Man, this is such a very, very um, sobering, sobering parable. Why is it sobering? He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. I remember the kingdom of heaven, while he talks about a, an earthly kingdom, God is going to establish and what Jesus was presenting to these people at the time. It also speaks about the way the things function in God's realm. Like the, the kingdom of heaven is a phrase to define or to describe the, what the influence of God's spirit looks like and how things should work under that influence. So this story is Jesus's way of communicating something about testing um, the, 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 the motives or the, the nature of a person. And you can see this from verse 20, 25. It says, while people were sleeping, the enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, wheat and left. So very, very foundational thing to understand. The people in those days were, were very, very agricultural. So they had an agro, how do you say that thing? Agrarian economy. So today, I know we still have agrarian economies in some places, but today it's like industrial, um, tech, you know, everybody's like in, just this, I don't know what what do you call this this particular industry now? The what what are we in? I know there's been the industrial age, there's technological technological age. I, I don't know if we're still in technological age. I think we are, but someone can correct me. So there have always been so many you know ages. There was a 
and in and in their time, the way they traded mostly was with they had money, they had like you know talents, which was a currency, um, and all of those stuff. But they also had a strongly agrarian society. So when he says things like wheat, seed in the soil, all those things, it makes very very strong sense to the audience because that's what they lived on. All right, it's very important to get this. It just makes comprehension easier. So what is he talking about? It says, while people were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the weeds. At the very early stage of plants growing, especially the weeds and wheat, you will not be able to tell the difference. They will look alike. They will, it will look like they, you know, they have fellowship together. Not no difference. And so when they realized that some of these weeds were showing up, they asked the master. Ah, did you plant these? And he said, no. And he says, who planted them? He says, the, an enemy did this. So that already infers, this is not God. God did not put these people in this, this kingdom. Somehow these people found their way into this kingdom. Somehow. By an enemy. And so he says, should we take them out? And what does the owner of the, the, the vineyard or the, uh, the owner of the field say? He says, wait wheat let them grow when it is harvest time you can take it out and by that time you'll be able to discern you'll be able to know oh this is weed and this is wheat because wheat has a distinctive look at the end so i think this is ultimately just jesus trying to give an analogy of the fact that in the kingdom of god there will be lookalikes but there will be the original and the end will prove the original and this aligns with you know, things I've taught you when it comes to just generally, when we talk about salvation in generic sense, the only way you can really know if someone is saved, right? Is at the end, like that's the, the, the most viable way to find out. But how many of us are going to wait till the end? You know, like how do we, do, how can we judge now? That's probably what you're thinking. And to judge now, would be to look at fruits but that's still not enough right so there's because someone can act right can look right i mean i've had you know encounters with people who just look the part and over time it was obvious that no these people are not true christians they don't even really love the lord they're just doing it because either they grew up in a christian family or they just want to they have a goal in mind they want to get one christian sister so they act in a certain way, and they look very spiritual. But you can almost tell from this parable that there's a, the way, there's a way to be distinguished at the end who is in the right and who is in the wrong. You know, so there are many parables when he goes talks about the kingdom of heaven or even the kingdom of God, and he mentions things like weeds and weeds, um, tears and um, the weeds, right? Tears and weeds. Um, goats and sheep like there's always that that whole like hey they may look the same they may look like the same four-legged creatures but they are very different and and time will tell all right so i i know i was trying to make a point there um because we cannot know for certain like we can have that assurance for ourselves because we trust in christ that yes this is real this experience is real but we cannot we cannot judge 
people. So we have to allow God do that. And that's what we see in, in this parable in a, in a form. All right. Questions on that? Um, I think this is a very beautiful one. I'm going to jump to, there are a lot of parables in Matthew 13, by the way. So we can just keep going downwards on that. Um, so he told them another parable. And still in the seed fashion, because that's what they understand. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. This would be the parable of the mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it is taller than the vegetables and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. And I think this is such a prophetic Oh my God, who can tell me what this might just be referring to? When, now that you understand the kingdom of heaven, what do you think Jesus is trying to talk about here when he says the mustard seed? So if you've not seen a mustard seed, it's, it can be as small as this. I don't know if my camera can pick it. I'll put it on the surface. It can be as small as this thing here. It's even smaller. But the tree that comes out of a mustard seed is, wow. So what do you think he's trying to talk about? <laughs> Sorry. Yes, the word of God. Okay, the word of God being effective and spreading. Amen to that. And I think it also has to do with the influence of the kingdom. Something so small and, you know, just very, very inconspicuous. Something small, something insignificant that seems insignificant. In fact, think about the fact that the person we're even talking about or worshiping as Lord and Savior did not come in any grand way. He came as a carpenter's son, grew up in Nazareth, a, a very despised village. Like, and and you can see the impact of his life and ministry till today. You know, so it just talks about the fact that what it looks like may not be what it is. And, um, and I think that's a powerful point Jesus is trying to, to give, to describe um, the kingdom of heaven, what it's like. It's not like a big seed producing big trees. It can be small things creating big results. All right. Um, next one. He told him another parable. And this one is very interesting. Still along the line of, so there are a lot of parables that are um, siblings. All right, and you have to pay attention to, to parables that are siblings because they tell you the same thing in a different way. So same story is being told here. It says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until they spread through all of it. That's the same thing, right? Small yeast spreading through flour and making the whole thing. And this was very, this was also in, a, in their culture. Bread was their staple. So it makes sense that he would give this as his story. Let's go on. Um, oh, sorry. Now look at what he said here. And I think this is very important to, to pay attention. He said, Jesus, verse 34 to 35 of Matthew 13. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables. And he will not speak anything to them without a parable so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And I've told you why Jesus 
spoke in parables. Can someone tell me that? I want to know you're listening. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Who's going to answer that question? Why did Jesus speak in parables? Because their hearts were hardened. Thank you. So the reason, amongst others, was that they had hard hearts. They, They were not receptive to this kingdom. So he spoke in parables. And this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah already mentioned. All right. So thank you. And someone said, okay, Jessica says, because hearing they do not perceive correctly. All right. So we're still in, we're still here. And um, and then someone asked him to explain um, the parable, one of the earlier parables that we mentioned. And um, what I've told you is anytime Jesus gives an explanation, you are blessed. Like he just made it easy for you. But you can almost tell what it is because now we're at the, we're not there where he said the story. We are many, many, many years after. So we can look back and say, oh, okay. So um, when we saw that he mentioned the enemy sold them, Jews there will just hear enemy. We can look back and say, that's the devil, right? But we don't even have to do that because in Matthew 13, okay, we're still here. Matthew 13, when everybody was dismissed, verse 36, he dismissed the crowd and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain the parable of the weeds in the field to us. <laughs> so imagine, you know, they're with Jesus. They're like, ah, we have this privilege. We can get in, you know, we can get the explanation from him directly. So he says, okay, well, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the word and the good seed. These are the sons of the kingdom. Ah, what are the weeds? The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So it's clear. Then he says, the harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. Oh, so there's no other way you could have figured this out. Like, imagine if we were doing the allegorical thing where we were trying to say, oh, who is this? What is this? Would have made a very big mess because Jesus here is explaining to us. That's why I said at the very beginning, you read a parable, you interpret it um, as the author intended because he's the one telling the story. He knows what he's trying to say. Um, And when you don't have that interpretation, Stay within the context. There's a lesson. So he says, therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. So he says, the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. So he's giving us the answer. He's telling us the angels will go out and their, their responsibility would be to deal with this problem. Um, so that is the explanation. And then he talks about the fire and, you know, people who, um, which leads me into the, what I'll call the fiery sayings of Jesus. Um, people who say that some of the parables or some of the things Jesus said are just purely symbolic. Some of them will claim when Jesus was teaching in the, um, someone on the Mount Mount. And he says, um, if your right eye causes you to sin, he says, pluck it out, gouge it out, 
for it is better for you to enter without one eye than to, you know, for all of your whole body to be thrown into the fire. And someone will read that and think, oh, okay, because gouging out the eye might be symbolic, then the hell part of it is also symbolic. But then that makes it lose its meaning, right? Like if everything is symbolic, why is the what's the point of telling that story in the first place? Or why is what's the point of that instruction? I think the point you should look out for is that yes, though it was hyperbolical, God Jesus was trying to um exaggerate something, but the point was clear. The attitude towards sin should be one such that you're willing to let go of a limb or an eye just to not be in that lifestyle um, because the repercussions are dire, all right? Or or they're just very, very, very serious. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Oh, God. Um, so verse 42, it says, they will throw them in the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hello? Sorry, did I? Are we still here? Okay, my network. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Okay, so um, look at the end. He says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. You see, so he's referring to the father's kingdom. And he says, anyone who has ears should listen. There are many more parables we could talk about, but I really want to show you um, that parable I just mentioned, which is one of the hard sayings of Jesus. First of all, I think one of the hard sayings of Jesus that is just light, is very light, um, is when Jesus said, if anyone, um, let me read this, let me show this to you. This is in um, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 29. Can someone read this to me? I want you to read this loud and clear. Um, we just read it now, but I want someone to read this. It's on the screen. Uh, okay. If your right eye causes you to Sorry. sin, yep. gorge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Thank you. One second. Uh, P, you're muted. Okay. So this is the text. And I said, the, 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 the import of this text is if there is any part of your body causing you to sin, the gravity, the, the heaviness, the, the impact should be as severe. So, I mean, obviously we can say Jesus is not saying we should become amputees in the literal sense where we're just going around, you know, every day. And we, you say, hey, how far now? I say, oh, ah, I didn't know you're a pirate. You know, you know what I mean by that? Like <laughs> you see patch on the person's eye, say, ah, ah, Victoria, what happened? Ah, more. My eye caused me to sin. I just said, let me remove it. Say, yeah, uh, sorry. You know. <laughs> so everybody's right eye by now should be gone. If we are following that text the way it is. But you need to realize Jesus used exaggerations. Hadwin is an exaggeration because nobody in history has practiced this. 
Um, but the point Jesus is making is sin is so terrible. And I don't know, like you cannot have a good, a good grasp and understanding of the gospel of Jesus. I don't have this balance. Like you need to have this balance where yes, you are forgiven. Yes. God doesn't count your sins against you. Yes. You're the righteousness of God in Christ, but you must have a strong understanding that the, the only reason you can even proclaim those things is because somebody died and he died for those very things. So your response to sin should be one of, of murder. You should want to kill those things that are causing you to stumble. In, so in practical terms, what does this look like? It means cutting off things, making extreme, taking extreme steps, Right? Your body is temple of God. You shouldn't treat it anyhow. So we're not saying pluck it out or break your, 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 your nails or destroy your hand or something. No, it's saying it is better to lose one of your body parts. That's how severe this is. That's how serious this is. All right. I'm going to give you one more um, difficult saying and maybe help you with the context a little bit. Um, and then we'll round off. All right. I hope this has been helpful. I know we went through a whole lot today, but we get to do a lot of this on Sunday where we just have to rush through a lot of content. But it's going to be great from um, next month. I have a plan. I I hope God helps us with that. So I want you to go to um, one second here. I hope you guys are praying for me. I don't know. Um, I, I feel like... Someone, well, Dara was the one that told me that I haven't been resting well. And maybe that's what's happening. Um, but yeah, so I want us to read the, the sto- where Jesus says, um, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, right? Turn the other side. And I want to ask you a question. What comes to your mind when you hear that phrase? Because Jesus asked them to do something. He says it's written in the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? And he says, but no, I say unto you. Let's go to Matthew 5, um, verse 30, 38. Last thing and we'll close, okay? And I, I'm, I'm putting this in the category of hard sayings there's a lot more and i think i'll just be doing overlapping like that if we have to continue before we get into the the, the main theme or we can even have this talk on thursday during pit stop session um if we have the time but look at this it says you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth what is this referencing the law but it wasn't just referencing the law in the sense of if someone destroys your eye, you destroy their eye. That was not really how they understood it as being Jews. Jews understood the law. He was saying, you have heard it said. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth means exact justice on each other. And Jesus was trying to, re- to show them what true justice is and who should have true justice. And this is where most people miss this point. So he says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In those days, they would weigh the crime and look for the 
exact punishment to give that is equal to that crime or to that thing that was done against you. So that was the concept. But then he goes on and says things that are more ridiculous. He says, as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, he says, let him have your coat as well. Now, most people don't get the implications of this. In those days, they had overcoats, undercoats, undergarments. So there was the what they wear inside and what they wear. And it, it, Jesus was kind of saying, oh, if they want to take away your tunic, let them have the cloak. Like, go totally naked. And you need to realize that in a culture of honor versus shame, that was how they perceived things, you know, in that their culture. Jesus was not just telling them, oh, give your extra clothes. He was saying, you know, be ready to feel completely shameful, like feel ashamed when someone is trying to mistreat you. So you can imagine the radical nature of what he was telling them to do. And then he says, if someone compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow, don't turn away. And then he, look at this. He now tells them what they should do. This is hard because it's not the natural way. We want vengeance, right? Like there's a part of us that just wants people to get what they are due. But don't get this twisted. God is a God of vengeance. God still wants to execute justice. But the problem is when a bad person is trying to execute justice on another bad person, there's no justice anymore. All right? And that's why the Bible will rightly say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. God wants to be the one to give the exact justice. So when you turn your cheek after being slapped, by the way, being slapped on the right cheek Nigerians will understand it. We are, we are closer to the Jewish culture than the Western world because we don't see that slap thing happen. But you know what it is now? When your mom slaps you in front of all your classmates, you know how you feel. Yeah, that's shame. These people understood it. So he was, not, he was saying, when you are mistreated, don't seek to get justice. Instead, leave the justice to God. That's the kingdom of God. That is how God wants things to operate. God wants you to walk in love, knowing that you, you trust him to do what is right. So you're not letting go of justice. You're not letting go of vengeance. You're allowing God to exact that vengeance in the right, just, fair way. All right. So let's read this and then we'll close. It says, I say to you, and this should be something that should stay in your heart for the rest of this week. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be what? Sons of your father in heaven. You see that same language. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, ultimately is speaking about God's domain of rule and power and authority. And you must allow that reign to be evident in your life. The reign of God is such that you leave it for him as king. So he says, you will be true sons of your father in heaven because you will not exact justice. You will leave that for him. But even in his justice, one thing we say about God is he is love. So love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. He says that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes the son 
to rise on the evil and on the good. God still recognizes who is evil and God still recognizes who is good. He knows they are evil. He knows they are good. He knows people who are good and those that are evil. Leave that for him. Because even in that, even though the evil will get the recompense of the reward that they deserve, God is still kind to them, right? That's the point he's making. The sun still rises. He doesn't say, oh, because this guy is evil, I'm not going to shine my sun on him. The rain falls for those who are evil and those who are good, the just and the unjust. So the whole point of this saying was to bring people back to the mindset of the kingdom. The kingdom is where God is ruler and you are not. All right? And so I will love you on your own. Since we're kind of wrapping up the series, look into more of those parables. There's there are a few more I wanted to talk about. I think I'll probably make short videos, send them on the group throughout the week so that we can cover this fully. Um, but yeah, that is all we have for today. Um, any questions from anyone on any points we've made today? Um, or anything that would be helpful as well to clarify? Any questions? Okay, so um, let's let's pray. All right, let's pray, guys. <sighs> Thank you, Father. We love you so much for your kindness to us in Jesus. You, you gave your son as a ransom for many. You gave your son to die a gruesome death just so we can be part of the kingdom. We can be part of the, the life that you have given to us, the eternal life, the life that never ends in a kingdom that never ends, with a God that never dies. It was such a delight, Lord. We thank you. Help us to live in the reality of this, the kingdom of God as being our realm, all right, that your spirit dwells in us. It says they, they will look to the right and to the left. It's The kingdom of God is not by observation because the kingdom of God is in us. The spirit dwells in us, and so we are in the kingdom of God. Um, Lord, we recognize your plan with Israel and we pray, Lord, that your plan will come to pass. Um, your will will come to pass. Help us to align with your plans, your purposes in, in time. We give you praise and glory. Pray for everyone here who is unhealthy um, and anyone who is stressed with life. I'm saying these two things because that's my situation as well right now. Um, not despondent, but definitely stressed. Um, not totally unhealthy, but just needing your healing. I pray, Lord, as a point of contact, that everyone here who is going through any of these or even worse, that you step in and um, grant them your healing um, in the name of the Lord Jesus. We thank you. We bless you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. 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 Hey there. So we've come to the end of this teaching session and we hope it was for you a teaching and an enlightening moment. We have so many other topics on our podcast that range from spiritual gifts to charisma to interpreting the Bible world and so many others. If you'd like to listen to any one of them, just look through our podcast catalog and find the topic that you'd love to learn. If you'd like to join us Sunday live on MixLR or on Zoom, all you need to do is go to our website, which is bit.ly forward slash bmglive4. That's the number four. Or you can look in the description and you'll find the link to the website there. 
We hope you have a blessed week and continue to grow and progress with joy in your faith.